You know what time it is? I'm sure that uh, towards the end of the message, that's what you'll be saying to me, <laughs> mentally. Yes, I, I know the Texans are going to try to improve their record against it, against the Rams today uh, at noon, so we'll try to be finished before then. But, you know, when you think about this, you know what time it is, really is, that is very often the question the New Testament is asking us. Do you know what time it is? There's an urgency to the New Testament. And this is why I had Alex read you the passage of Scripture that he did. Because in our passage this morning, Mark chapter 2, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. There's an urgency to Jesus' ministry as well. And if I could use the football analogy, sorry, ladies, I'm not going to lose you that badly here. Um, <clears throat> if you're not football fans, I, I really haven't watched much football since, uh, since Jerry Jones bought the Cowboys. Okay, uh, uh, you know, I say that's my excuse, but really it was because I was in the middle of working on a THM and a PhD. And when you're a graduate student, you don't have time to watch football, do you? <laughs> yeah, my students are saying, amen, preach it. Uh, but it is in the New Testament as though we are in the fourth quarter of the game. That time of the game when the sense of urgency has gripped the players and the fans and everyone is trying to do their level best to get back to the line of scrimmage and have that next play. And for us, we aren't just in the fourth quarter. The New Testament says the two-minute warning has already happened. The point is, we can't see the scoreboard from where we are on the field, and we don't know how much time is left. That's why we've got to make every second on the field count. And so that's why Paul says in Ephesians 5, Be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. This is the application to the passage that we have before us. I like to make sure I front load that a little bit because I get excited about the details and I can get lost in the weeds. And you're saying, do you know what time it is? Uh, but so, so that I don't get lost and I don't forget to tell you this, this is about timing and about wisdom. Because there's no, uh, there's no black and white. There's no um, formula, I should say. God's truth is black and white. God's truth is absolute. But there's no formula by which it's applied. Its application takes wisdom. And so there's no mathematical formula I can type into a spreadsheet. There's no button that I can push and get an automatic result. From God. It takes wisdom to know what to do. And as we see Jesus go through this set of uh, about five different vignettes in the life of Jesus, they're all kind of tied together uh, <clears throat> on the theme of wisdom and the person of Jesus Christ, who He is and what He's doing. So wisdom is making the most of the opportunity that God has given us. 
And in our passage in Mark chapter 2, we're going to take you from Mark chapter 2 verse 13 to the end of the chapter and on into chapter 3 verse 6. Now, every line of scripture is God-breathed from heaven, the movement of the Spirit, but the verse and chapter divisions sometimes come from the other place. <laughs> that is... They're not always as helpful as they should be. But we're going to see three items here in Jesus' life. Uh, 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 aspects of Jesus' ministry. We're going to see His purpose, His method, and His authority. And so pleasing God takes wisdom because there is no formula. Because it's a relationship with a person. And if you want to please God, accept Jesus' authority to guide you to true wisdom as the conduct of your life. Let's have a look at our passage. Uh, let me kind of lay it out for you because there is, we're going to fly pretty fast. We're not going to stop on a lot of the details. There's a few details I want to camp out on for apologetic reasons as well. And no, that doesn't mean I'm going to say I'm sorry. It means uh, we have a defense here. But uh, chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, there's a short little vignette about the call of Levi, one of Jesus' disciples. You know him as Matthew, uh, the tax collector. So even <laughs> tax collectors can find the grace of God. <laughs> You're laughing. Why are you laughing? Anything's possible. Just not uh, usual, I think. But... Uh, <laughs> Then verses 15 through 17, the subject of tax collectors leads very easily to the subject of table fellowship. Why is this guy hanging out with sinners? Why is this guy a friend of sinners? Verses 18 through 22 move from feasting to fasting and why Jesus doesn't do it. Verses 23 to 28 of chapter 2 have to do with Sabbath conduct. Jesus and his disciples picking grain on the Sabbath. And then another connection here is with the Sabbath, Jesus' authority over it, with the healing of the man in a synagogue on the Sabbath with a withered hand. Certainly not a life-threatening uh, illness, but nevertheless Jesus heals him. We'll come back to that idea in a moment. So if we kind of try to color code this a bit, with our purpose, method, and authority, these, these are how these turn out. So the first two episodes, if you will, of our passage are about Jesus' purpose. So we'll find the call of Levi in verses 13 and 14, and in verses 15 to 17, the subject of table fellowship. Verse 13, and he, went again out, <clears throat> and he went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. You remember how last week he was in a crowded house, and there wasn't even room to sit down, uh, <clears throat> and there wasn't even any room to get the paralytic in, and they carried him, let him down through the roof, and he said, your sins are forgiven. This picks up right where he left off and just says, and he was out walking again. This is Mark's typical way of doing things. And he just keeps going. And he went out again by the seashore. All the people were coming to him and he was teaching them. 
as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. This man, Levi, the son of Alphaeus, is uh, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, named Matthew. So he's a man who has more than one name. Most of us have more than one name, unless we're entertainers and then we can go back to just one name. <laughs> Never understood that, but anyway, all right. Matthew is this fellow, and he is the author of the gospel by that name as well. And so uh, the grace of God reaches even him. Now, you'll recall from the first chapter of Mark how Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee. And as he was walking, came across these two pairs of brothers, uh, Peter and his brother, and uh, James and John. He called them and they left their nets and followed him. This is parallel to that. So what we find is here, same story, same song, different verse, maybe we could say, where Jesus comes along and says to, to Matthew, follow me. And so he got up and followed him. Just like these fishermen left their nets, he left his tax collecting business, presumably in the hands of subordinates, uh, maybe sold his share in it, but... Uh, Mark doesn't bother us with the details. He just says, Matthew obeyed immediately. And you remember that this section of the Gospel of Mark is still talking about Jesus' authority. So G Jesus' high rank. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, uh, so Matthew's obedience parallels that of the other disciples. And we transition immediately into the next scene where we find Jesus at Matthew's home at a dinner party with an extensive guest list. It says, and it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house. Let me stop there and make that a uh, little less ambiguous. Uh, he was reclining, meaning Jesus was reclining at the table in his, meaning Matthew's house. Okay, does that make sense? Uh, some of your English translations will actually bring that out and say, as Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, this is what happened. It's rather ambiguous in the Greek text, but by context, uh, this, this makes sense. You could hardly expect Jesus to be the host here. And so, uh, what we find in Matthew 2.15 is a, is a parallel, so to speak, to Zacchaeus. Remember in Luke uh, uh, where Zacchaeus, the, uh, uh, a man who uh, climbs up the tree to see Jesus, Jesus looks up at him and says, I'm going to have dinner at your house tonight. So uh, who knows? what? Who knows what Jesus said before he said, follow me. Hey, I know what you're cooking tonight. <laughs> well, I know it's not you. I know it's your wife. But I know what you're cooking. Let's go to dinner. Follow me. Jesus, do you know the way to my house? Yeah, I sure do. Um... So it happened as he was reclining at the table in his house and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples for there were many of them and they were following him. Now the many of them are probably Jesus' disciples. So the band of Jesus' disciples is growing. Here we've got more and more people joining Jesus' 
entourage, if you will. His band of followers is increasing. Now, don't confuse disciple, the word disciple with only the 12 disciples. Here, uh, Mark probably means more than just those who end up becoming the, uh, the interns for Jesus' ministry, if you will. It was probably an unpaid position, so maybe we could call them interns in our parlance. Um, because later in the book, we find Jesus going out all night and praying and coming back in and selecting 12. So it's almost like Jesus has a group of people that are following him. They're kind of, he's kind of testing to see who he wants to actually bring on full time to be trained to, to, and commissioned to carry the gospel as apostles. We come to that later. This can hardly mean that there were many tax collectors and sinners because it just says many tax collectors and sinners. At any rate, the, the setting is, is clear who Jesus is dining with. And this, of course, bothers the religious crowd. <laughs> Isn't it funny how if you're, if you're really religious, things bother you a whole lot more? Uh, now, of course, you say, what, you're not religious? And I say, no, I'm not religious. I have a relationship with Jesus Christ, but I'm not a religious person. I am ordained a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but I am not a religious person. I have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't consider myself religious. You don't have to when you have a relationship with Him. I've been commissioned by Him to carry the gospel. So, no, the religious people of this country are the problem. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> so, I'm, I'm rattling your cage a little bit. Have you noticed? Because... I don't want you to be like the scribes and the Pharisees who are the obstacles to getting to Jesus. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, <laughs> they said to his disciples, they, could, they couldn't even come to him. Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Notice, every time tax collectors are mentioned, sinners are mentioned. And every time sinners are mentioned, it's tax collectors that are, that are mentioned. That's because for the Pharisees... Now, I'll tell you what. If you and I had lived back then, we probably would have been Pharisees. Think about it. These guys are the, these guys are the people who are committed to serious study of the Word of God, to living out the, the Bible in their lives... And certainly not all of the Pharisees were opposed to Jesus, but the, the Pharisees as a group were opposed to Jesus. There were many Pharisees who did come to faith in Jesus Christ. We meet them later. We meet them in the book of Acts, chapter 15. They still have religious hang-ups in Acts chapter 15 because they're still, they're still hung up on circumcision. But after some discussion, they work out the circumcision thing. So not all Pharisees were bad people. Uh, not every religious person is a bad person. But the Pharisees typically were the ones who were leading the opposition against Jesus. And that's because they're serious students of the Bible. And as serious students of the Bible, they tried to maintain their ritual purity. Now notice, ritual purity. That means whether you're clean or unclean, whether you can go worship at the temple, whether you can give an offering. 
Now, there is, a, there is a theological connection between ritual cleanness and moral integrity. Uh, it, is, it, is a, it is a picture, ritual cleanness, that is the, the okay, the authorization to go worship in the temple under the Old Testament protocols, is connected to moral integrity. But in the Pharisees' day, they had separated the two. It didn't matter to them whether they had moral integrity. It mattered to, only to them whether they had ritual cleanness, which meant for them that you couldn't sit at a table with someone who might be ritually unclean, maybe someone who might have a, 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 a profession like being a tanner uh, or an undertaker, or something like that. Someone who might be ritually unclean. You never know if you might brush up against them and become ritually unclean. Now, you're a serious student in the Word of God. You want to be able to go worship in the temple, right? But they had gotten so tangled up in the regulations of their religion that they had forgotten the relationship they had with Yahweh. And so, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? You never know whether they might be defiled. And when someone defiled comes into contact with you, you become defiled too. Never works the other way around, except when Jesus touches the lepers. Isn't that interesting? It should shock you when lepers come to Jesus in the Gospels and he touches them. You should put your hand to your mouth and say, He touched a leper. Because if you and I had touched a leper, we would have been called unclean. We would have had to go do the ritual cleaning to become ritually clean, to be able to offer our sacrifice in the temple. You see, you and I would have been Pharisees. Paul was a Pharisee. So sinners are not just the immoral, the reprobate, the... the, the smokes, drinks, and goes with people who do kind of person. They're also people with unclean occupations. And hearing this, verse 17 says, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous. If, if there had been air quotes, he probably would have been doing this. <laughs> I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. If Jesus came to call the, the, the righteous, He wouldn't have needed the good news of uh, repentance and forgiveness. Verse 17 is, is why I've titled this section, Purpose. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. See, to call. I came for a purpose. I came for the purpose of calling sinners. There's a parallel here. He says, look, physicians don't spend their time hanging out with healthy people. Otherwise, they wouldn't be working, would they? Uh, the Romans hadn't passed a, a, a legislation keeping physicians from working with sick people. Uh, <clears throat> gosh, tough crowd this morning. <laughs> And so Jesus says, well, look, if you're a physician, you've got to spend time with sick people, right? So look who I'm spending time with. I'm spending time with those sinners, as you call them. 
the sinner needs a Savior. Now, keep in mind, of course, Jesus is not looking the other way when it comes to sin. It's not like He's saying, yeah, you can go ahead and continue your old sinful lifestyle. You can, you, you can, you can live however you like. But He spent time with them because they were willing to receive His message. And He'd say, you know, uh, you're involved in sin. You are running away from God. You need to come to grips with this. And I'm the one to tell you that because I'm going to go to the cross to pay for those sins. And those people who knew they were sinners, those people who had, had accepted His authority to tell them the good news, were able to say, yeah, you know, you're right. I am ill. I need a cure. See the connection between sin and sickness? It's not a cause and effect relationship. This is a metaphorical relationship, right? That is, these guys who are dining at Matthew's table with Jesus recognize they've been paralyzed by sin and need someone to release them. And so, uh, Jesus contrasts, he says, I didn't come to call the righteous. If you're going to measure your life by your warped standards and call yourself righteous, then you're not even going to hear what I have to say. So that's why I'm not spending time with you. I'm not spending time with you, the righteous, who want to increase their reputation in society by having a famous teacher around. I'm going to spend time where my message is being accepted. And so, you know, one of the reasons why you, you think, well, why, why isn't this person coming to faith? Why, why, why aren't some people coming to faith? Well, it's because they don't want to. They've already rejected the message. And Jesus doesn't obligate Himself to go to the, to the so-called righteous. Jesus' critics measured His conduct by their standards. They considered themselves righteous, so they aren't going to hang around with the same people that Jesus are. And so they have no need for His ministry. See, Jesus measured His conduct by the purpose God had for His life. He said, I did not come to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners. So that's how Jesus measures His conduct. That's how Jesus determines what's wise in the use of His time. And so the purpose part of our message this morning is telling us to measure our conduct in life by God's purpose for us. Measure your conduct in life. Measure whether it's wise by the purpose God has for you. And He has the same purpose for you to rub shoulders with those sinners, to rub shoulders with people who have been rejected by religious people. You know, if you're just honest and open with people and just, just be yourself, who Jesus is living through you, doesn't mean that you're, you know, in befriending a sinner, doesn't mean that you're saying that their sin is okay. You're just saying, hey, you know, I have some news to tell you that, that, uh, that you need to hear. And the way, you, the way you get in to, to have a hearing is by having a relationship with 
that person. You can't just go knock someone over the head and say, Jesus loves you. Okay? I mean, sometimes that'll work. But most of the time, it's going to take a relationship with, with another person. So that's Jesus' purpose. So our first two vignettes from the Gospel of Mark, verses 13 to 17, deal with His purpose. Verses 18 to 22 raise the issue of fasting. And Jesus' reply is couched in terms of method. Now, we went from calling Levi to sitting at his table, and the next question is, why are you eating? Right? The concern moves from eating to fasting, from, from feasting to not eating at all, uh, from, from dinner party uh, and, if you will, dinner jacket to camel hair shirt. Because immediately you can see the contrast between John and Jesus. Remember John came wearing this camel hair shirt with a leather belt and his diet was locusts and honey. And I'm thinking, gosh, you know, I'd rather follow Jesus than John. <laughs> i tell you. Uh, and yet, John is doing exactly what God wants him to do. And Jesus is doing exactly what God wants him to do. And yet we have two di very, very different ministries with the same purpose. John's disciples and the Pharisees, verse 18 says, were fasting. And they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Real clear question of the contrast between what they're doing. The Pharisees fasted. The John's disciples fasted. Now, who are the people asking the question? That's pretty vague as well. Uh, if Mark had, had written in English and had an editor, um, they, they would have, uh, the editor would have asked him to clarify several things in, the, in this passage. But as it is, Mark... Uh, Mark, under the inspiration of the Spirit, writes the way Mark does. And so he leaves the they very vague, but it's just somebody, some group of people came and asked this. And they asked this, they're certainly not John's disciples, they're certainly not the Pharisees, and they're not Jesus' disciples. They're just somebody kind of looking at this from the outside. And there's something of a challenge implied in the question, too. Well, these guys fast. Those guys fast. Why don't you? You know, after all, the the popular uh, the popular piety of the day was fasting. I'll come back to that in a moment. But John himself even had a large following, even an, even a following that lasted past the resurrection. It's very interesting as you read the book of Acts, uh, Acts eighteen, Acts nineteen. Uh, the, the missionaries, the apostles, uh, come across people who had been instructed in John's baptism but hadn't heard about the coming of the Spirit. And they're, they're scratching their heads saying, we've heard about John's baptism, but you know, we don't have any other information past that. And they said, they said have you heard of the Holy Spirit? And they said, is there a Holy Spirit? Really? 
and so you can, you can tell, I mean, even years later, these people had been instructed by John and still continued in, in what they had been taught. So you can see how, how powerful an influence John had. Uh, <clears throat> popular piety of the day involved fasting as well. In Zechariah chapter 8, you find that there are several fasts that had been added since the exilic period. Since the time they came back from Babylon, they started adding fasts to the, to the kind of yearly routine. Um, Luke 18 uh, mentions that the Pharisees, though, had gone even one step further. We're not just going to fast several times a year. For us, it's two times a week. Uh, <clears throat> Monday and Thursday are what some people would say it was. That's, that's why I think the Christians started fasting on Friday. Because uh, we aren't going to be like Pharisees. No way. We're not going to be like Pharisees at all. But we're going to fast on Friday instead of on Thursday like Pharisees do. I can tell how fast they became Pharisees. And Jesus warns against fasting in, in Matthew chapter 6 to, be, to impress people, you know. Mess up your clothes, mess up your hair, look kind of emaciated, kind of show your ribs like your dog does, you know, when you come home and the dog shows their ribs to say, you haven't fed me. Yeah, that's what people were doing. Oh, I haven't eaten because I'm so pious. And so Jesus warns against that. Jesus said to them, verse 19, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Jesus' reply is centered on this metaphor of a bridegroom. Of course, you can tell he's talking about himself, right? He says, I'm the bridegroom. Now, I don't think Jesus questioners would have immediately recognized uh, immediately recognized this because it probably wasn't a popular connection to make but it's fairly clear what Jesus is doing is calling to mind those passages in the Old Testament in which uh, God the Lord Yahweh appears as a bridegroom to Israel and so Hosea uh, chapter 2 verses 14 to 20 are one of those texts. Uh, <clears throat> Jesus is making use of that figure of speech. And uh, in Hosea chapter 2, what's happening is Hosea is talking about the restoration of Israel. When Israel will finally be restored back to her rightful husband, Yahweh, instead of in an adulterous affair with Baal. And so Jesus is picking up this eschatological urgency of the time and saying, the end is here. He's saying the bridegroom is here. John chapter 3 verse 29 says... He who, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. 
Now, this is a different gospel, but you can see in the gospels that John also recognizes who Jesus is and what the difference between their ministries is. And so, when Jesus says this, He is saying, it would be inappropriate for me and my disciples to fast because now is the time for celebration. Now is the time because the bridegroom is here for you to eat, drink, and be merry. But the days will come, verse 20, when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. Here is a veiled reference to Jesus' betrayal, torture, crucifixion, and death when the disciples will mourn the loss of Jesus. Of course, He's not going to stay that way. He's going to rise from the dead. But still, Jesus recognizes there will come a time when fasting is appropriate. Now, as to whether it's appropriate for us at any given time, that's left open by this passage at any rate. So I'll leave it to your wisdom to determine whether you think fasting is applicable to you. But verse 21 turns to the reason why this is the truth. There is something new under the sun. God is doing something new in the ministry of Jesus. Because in the person of Jesus, the kingdom has come. It's part of his ministry to usher that in. Now, of course, it, we haven't gotten here yet. There is still a, 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 a not yet element to this. But when Jesus is there, there's an already element to it. And he says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse terror results. I have some friends who need to, to fix their jeans. Uh, you know, those holes in the front of them. And so, are you going to sew a patch on that? Well, you'd have to sew, you'd have to wash the patch first, right? Because the moment you, you wash those jeans, they shrink. Um, that's why you can buy them pre-washed now, I'm told. Uh, you get to my age in life when you're sort of becoming circumferentially challenged. <laughs> you don't wear jeans anymore. <laughs> the, other part, the other metaphor Jesus uses is uh, the one of wineskins. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins. The wine is lost in the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. This is all part of the process of fermenting wine. It would start in a vat. It would be fermented for a while, but then the new wine would be added to new wineskins because, of course, as wine ferments, it expands. If you used old wineskins that had been old, dried up, cracked leather, then you would lose both the wine and the wineskins. You'd be in trouble. So you need to use leather that hasn't shrunken and dried. So what Jesus is saying by these two metaphors, the patch on the clothing and the new wineskins, he's saying 
because my message is new, because I am the person of the king and I am building my kingdom, I cannot fit what I am doing into the old forms and the traditions which you, the Pharisees, operate under. I'm not going to be put in that box. God's never put in a box, is He? He's never caught on a technicality. And Jesus is saying that this is new. So why doesn't He fast? Well, His method is new because His ministry is new and because He has the authority to do it. And this brings us down to the last two uh, pieces of our passage this morning. One is a Sabbath controversy and the other is a healing on the Sabbath. So you see that the, that the, the common theme running between the two of them is Jesus, what Jesus does on the Sabbath. This seems to be a recurring theme in all of the Gospels. Jesus doing things on the Sabbath and the Pharisees and the scribes and other religious people upset about it because they want to fit Jesus into their little box. So let's look at verses 23 to 28. And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. Jesus says in John 5.17, My father is working until now and I myself am working. Another Sabbath controversy in John 5. It's not that Jesus is out for a Sunday stroll here, or Saturday, okay. Sabbath, this would be Saturday, right? It's not that, not that Jesus and his disciples are just walking somewhere. The, the point is that they are on a mission from the king. They're doing God's business. They're doing, as it were, what the priests do. You know, the priests work on the Sabbath, and they aren't liable. Think about that. You know, you've got to keep on, you've got to keep on offering the sacrifices on the Sabbath. Hey, if, if the eighth day for circumcision comes along, and you're supposed to circumcise somebody, you circumcise them on the Sabbath. So you break the Sabbath to keep a different commandment, so to speak. Break in air quotes, right? See how that works? But you, did, you, hadn't, you hadn't had to think about that, have you? Okay. But these guys did. They had to think about, well, let's see, what can we do? What can we do and what can we not do on the Sabbath? Let's see. Let's see, is it considered carrying a pot if you carry it out the door? Well, yeah. But, well, if you hand it out the window to somebody, it's not considered carrying the pot. So you're not liable, but the person who receives the pot from, the, from outside might be. If, and, and so on. I mean, they had formulae for determining when you had broken the Sabbath. He says, the Pharisees were saying to them, look, why are they doing not what's, what's not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, it's not picking the grain that's, that's the problem. Okay, because Deuteronomy says you're supposed to leave the corners of your field unharvested so poor, the poor can come by with their hands, not with farm equipment but with their hands, and gather what they need to do, like Ruth did in the book of Ruth. So the, the issue isn't plucking the grain, but it's presumably what they're doing with it once they get it. 
They're rubbing it in their hands. And what's that called? That's called threshing. And then, you know, you blow away the chaff, and that's called winnowing. That's work, my friend. That is one of the 39 things that you are not allowed to do on the Sabbath. Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Jesus says, he said to them, have you never read? <laughs> this, must, this must have been like turning the knife, right? Have you not read? Like you guys who are the experts in the Bible, haven't you read? You know the story of what David did when he was in need. He went into the... Uh, when he and his need, uh, when he was in need, and he and his companions became hungry, verse 26. How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. Wow. You know the the point of the story is that human need outweighs your religious observance. But he goes on to say that the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. We'll see that in just a minute. But now, um, we don't have time to go into all of the details, but if you look at 1 Samuel 21... In First Samuel, you have to keep reading actually, because otherwise, if you if 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 you don't if you read First Samuel twenty one, you don't keep reading to First Samuel twenty two. You'll think there's a historical problem here, because the name of the high priest given in First Samuel chapter twenty one is Ahimelech, not Abiathar. And you go well. Let's see. Was Jesus mistaken? Because you know, I mean, David went. And, I mean, it's obviously the same incident that we're talking about here. But if you keep reading, the, you know, this is the whole scenario where David's on the run and Saul is after him. And when, when David leaves, uh, Saul goes and kills all the priests who helped David. You remember, you remember that story. But if you keep reading in 1 Samuel 22, you find out that there's a guy named Abiathar who is the son of Ahimelech. He's the son of the high priest. And uh, if you read really, really carefully... I think what's going on here is that uh, Ahimelech, the guy who's called Ahimelech in 1 Samuel chapter 21, is called Ahimelech in 1 Samuel 21 because that differentiates him from his son, Abiathar. But Abiathar is a family name in that lineage. So there's a guy named Ahimelech who's the high priest, but he could also have been called Abiathar without any confusion. There's also this precedent Luke 3.2 says, In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. And John 18 says that when they first arrested Jesus, they took him to the house of Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Are you with me here? Okay, you see the connection I'm making here? Annas wasn't really the high priest. Caiaphas was the high priest, but he has the same authority as the high priest because he had been high priest. And look at this, and it says, the high priest, I'm, I'm giving you fragments of John 18, 13, 19, and 24. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. So, Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Who's the high priest? Who is questioning Jesus in that first scene? It's Annas, and he is called high priest without blinking. 
See how in Mark chapter 2, verse 26, we don't really have a problem? <laughs> you know, all these so-called historical problems, if you can work out what the interpret... Usually when, when people say there's a historical problem, it's not a historical problem, it's an interpretive problem, and they just haven't done enough homework on this. But this is one of these things that, uh, you know, you watch the PBS channel, History Channel, when they're not looking for Sasquatch, when they, you know, they finally get around to looking for the historical Jesus... They're going to bring up passages like this. So, I, you know, I had to bring this up. I wish I had more time to, to really tease out all the details, but we've got another passage to deal with. But Jesus' response is that the Son of Man, that's me, remember? The Son of Man is the Lord even of the Sabbath. I think the real connection is, is if I could put the emphasis on the right word here. Haven't you read what David did? And he is in, in so saying, he's saying, hey, look, yeah, David has the right to break this Sabbath thing, the don't eat the high priest's bread thing. I, I'm better than David. Okay. And, and, you know, it's not bragging if you can back it up. <laughs> so I'm better than David. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. What I say goes. And he's not, you know, he's not being arrogant in saying it. He's just telling the truth. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So the next scene, real quickly here, the, the, the man with the withered hand. He entered into a synagogue and a man was there whose hand was withered. And they were watching him to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. It's not, hey, we're really worried about this guy recovering from an illness. It's, <laughs> let's, let's just use this guy. We don't care if he gets killed in the crossfire, but let's put him out there. So he said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. They couldn't say anything. It's, look, it's not a question of what day you do something on. If something is wrong, it's wrong no matter what day of the week it is. So it naturally follows that if something is right to be done, something that ought to be done, isn't made wrong by it being done on some other day of the week. And so why should they stand in the way of God's grace and mercy on this man with a withered hand. So Jesus says, looked around them at them with anger, verse 5, grieved at their hardness of heart. Yes, Jesus, meek and mild, who never raised his voice. It says, he looked at them with anger. Yes, what, what angers Jesus is not is not the sin of the sin of the tax collectors and sinners. It's the sin of a hardness of heart, thinking that you are right with God when you really aren't. Stretch out your hand, he said to the man, and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. The Herodians are a political party, not a religious party. They're the people who want to see the, the Herodian dynasty continue. 
And so the Pharisees and the scribes are using political power now to go after Jesus. Jesus acted in accordance with His God-given authority as Son of Man and Lord of the Sabbath to heal this man, to achieve God's purpose for His life and ministry. And so we've seen His purpose, His method, and His authority. All of this within the uh, section of Mark's Gospel that deals with authority. Jesus, in so doing, in breaking the Sabbath, if you will, is using his own wisdom and his own authority to set his own methods because of the purpose God has given to him. Same thing with us. There's no formula. There's no rule book that we can look at for every single possibility the way the Pharisees had. What God is calling us to do is to use wisdom as we approach life and its problems and to always do what's right. And that's why Paul says, therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Such a thought actually even goes farther back to Moses that hero of the Pharisees, Moses also said this in Psalm 90, Psalm 90, 90, verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. The Net Bible renders this, so teach us to consider our mortality so that we might live wisely. What God is calling us to do is to act within the purpose that He's given us, to act with the methods that He's uh, granted us to use, and we act in the authority that He's given us as His representatives. 